This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane, and we've got you now for an hour of science. In the studio with me is Dr. Ailey. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you going? Good. You haven't popped yet? No. Nah. your baby? No, nah, not yet. She was a bit late today, folks, and we started <laughs> thinking, you know, it happens. No, no, still in there. But she's promised an on-air birth for us. Oh, have I now? <laughs> <laughs> that would, would that be a radio first? I oh, know. I don't know. I'm sure it's been done, but... All for science, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> we'll bring the towels. Dr. Ray? Dr. Shane, I'll boil the hot water. Uh... <laughs> I'm not sure if they still do that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think these uh, days the the messier the better isn't that true you know for the kids anyway happy new year first <laughs> yeah. first first time on the show uh, although you you interviewed one of my students already yes we did yeah we did so it's all happening um now it's been a huge week in science so we're going to start off with some news and then we have a, a couple of guests coming up. we're going to be talking about pollution and antarctica and and snakes and venom and all sorts of stuff today we have some really cool uh people coming into the studio but dr ailey we're going to start with you and some news for the week What's we are we're going to start with antarctica actually oh, cool. going on that theme um and i thought i'd talk about something that's kind of been brewing over the last well pretty much this summer um this southern hemisphere summer anyway uh, and that is the larsen sea ice shelf and the Larsen Sea ice shelf collapse in Antarctica. Now, it's a pretty boring name, Larsen Sea. There was an A and a B. They've since disappeared. Yes. Oh. So Larsen, the Larsen ice shelf complex, I suppose you might say, uh, it's up in the Antar- Antarctic Peninsula. So if you look at a map of Antarctica, that's that, that's that little tiny pointy bit that kind of points towards South America. And it's on the east side of that, so kind of the Atlantic Ocean side, if you mm-hmm. want to talk about that. Uh, but it, it borders on the what they call the Weddell Sea. And, and when we're talking about an ice shelf, what we're talking about is basically down in Antarctica and, and anywhere else where you've, it's cold enough to have sea ice, uh, if you've got a glacier flowing into the into the ocean, you get a bit of ice kind of sitting at the end of it, effectively, mm. acting like a cork for that mm. glacier. So it slows the glacier down and the ice shelf just sits there and doesn't it doesn't melt like normal kind of sea ice. But it's on just, the land? Or, no, it's on or the sea. Both? Is it's it both or just on the sea? Well, the ice shelf bit is on the sea. Mm. The glacier's on the land. Yep, and it's stopping it from coming right. in. Right, and yep. they're, co- they're connected, mm-hmm. right? So basically back in 1995, the Larsen A part of the complex, which is in a little embayment up towards South America, uh, that collapsed. That was a small... Uh, glacier and that that disintegrated and went off into the ocean. Now mm-hmm. there are a lot of little icebergs floating floating around from that. Larsen B went in two thousand and two, mm-hmm. uh, and Larsen B was a huge, <laughs> huge ice shelf. This was we're talking kind of nearly the size of Kangaroo Island. Right. Big. Okay. It is a it, it's a big ice shelf uh, and that collapsed and that wasn't a good thing. But now Larsen C, which is further south again. Uh, this is the fourth biggest ice shelf in Antarctica. Okay. Uh, it's got a huge crack in it. They discovered it in December, and it was about 100 kilometres long. And just this week, they've done another flyover to measure it again, and it's measured out to about 175 kilometres long, this Ooh. crack. The crack's 175 kilometres long. Correct. So a third of the way from here to Canberra kind yep, of thing. Pretty yeah, pretty much. So this this crack is huge, and what it means is it's it's ma- basically making its way towards the ocean. And so what they think is, uh, they don't know whether it's going to be weeks or months, but they think basically this is signalling um, a big disintegration of the Larsen Sea ice shelf. Mm. And the reason this is so important is because, as I said before, the ice shelf really acts like a cork to the glacier. Yep. You remove a cork, 
what's going to happen? Oh, yeah. Down she flows. Right, exactly. So the glacier speeds up, and when they saw this with Larson B, I think it, it increased in its speed of progression uh, five to eight times, wow. something like that. Yep. Um, so the ice shelf itself doesn't contribute to sea level rise because mm. it's already sitting on the ocean, but if that glacier melts and the glacier moves faster... That does, mm. and so um, this is this is one of the concerns. And of course, um, one of the reasons it's 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 melting is um, because that area is, is warming up faster than a lot of other areas around the globe. And you've also got warm ocean waters coming in from underneath and eroding it from underneath as mm. well. And with the ice shelf itself, did that start off? Like as the gla- you know, as it built up from the glacier. So the question yes. I'm asking is: Is it fresh water or is it salt water? Um, or do we good not know? Good question, actually. Good question. I think it might be fresh water. I think it's built up from the glacier itself. Like I think it's flown, f- yeah. flown, flowed, flowed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's flying now. Flying, yeah, yeah. It, is, it is flowed down from the glacier. But mm. um, yeah, these things are really old. I mean, Larsen B and Larsen C. They think they've been there for the entire uh, Holocene epoch, which is like mm. the last ten to eleven thousand years. Larsen A was a bit more unstable. They think that's only been there for 4,000 years. So mm. that's kind of like, oh, yeah, it could break up. But B and C have been there for a long Cause, time. Because that was going to be my next question. Obviously, this is a normal... Um, happening. It, yeah, uh, you for know, sure. it, it occurs. For sure. Um, for but sure. Over, over what time frame? And exactly. That's the real Tens issue of, of thousands, even even hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. Glaciers are slow beasts. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah Hence, glacial. Yeah. <laughs> Funny that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great So, term. yeah, not great news, um, but <laughs> keep an eye on it. Keep an eye on the news because this, this crack is getting bigger. And, and if we see this disintegration of Larsen C, it doesn't really bode well for all the glaciers around that Antarctic mm. Peninsula area. Mm. Interesting stuff. Mm. Dr. Ray. Uh, Dr. Shane, I, um, I wanted to talk about the evolution of gills. First, I didn't know there was debate about the evolution of gills uh, in, in, in jawed versus jawless vertebrates. Is that right? And I had it sounds no like idea. a movie, jawed yeah. versus yeah. jawless. Well, well, the actual terms, I'm going to murder them. So a jawless vertebrate is a cyclostome. That sounds okay. And a jawed vertebrate is a nathostome. Ooh. And I'm, I, I'm sure Dr. Dr. Jen and, and Dr. Ewan are going, oh, my God, I just said those all wrong. But <laughs> um, anyway, so apparently there's this debate on how gills evolve in these creatures because it's it's about where the gill starts its growth in the tissue. It can start in the uh, innermost layers of the cells, the endoderm, which is what they do for jawless, or it can start in the outermost layers for of the ecto, of the of the cell, which is called the layers of the cell, which is called the ectoderm, hmm. and that's what happens for jawed. And so there's actually this debate about how gills have evolved for fish that do and don't have jawbones. So jawless uh, invertebrates would be lampreys, things like that, um, lamprey pie, I guess, if you like eels. <laughs> uh, I don't. Um, or, or, or jawed vertebrates, so that's most other fish you're thinking of. And, and so this has actually led scientists to start, they actually believe that the evolution of gills happened twice. So there's this kind of, you know, there's, yeah. there's plenty of, t- there's plenty of things where in evolution where people say, oh, that evolved a couple times. Like, I think snakes have actually evolved or believed to have evolved on their own separately a, a couple different pathways. So they thought, oh, because you have jawed and jawless vertebrates in fish, that you've got evolution happening on two different pathways. Hmm. Now, what's interesting though is, and so there's debate on this. Um, uh, there are two researchers in the University of Cambridge that studied the embryonic form of it's actually called the little skate. So a, a jawed fish, uh, and, and looked at, it's related to other sharks and rays, and they looked at how its gill tissue developed, and it developed from the endotherm, endoderm, which is the, the inner layer. But that's how jawless vertebrates evolve gills, not jawed ones. So they've actually found a living example of, that's counter to the hypothesis that you had two different ways for that path to evolve. And so, um, 
So if they're actually saying, wait, gills can actually grow from the same tissue, regardless if you have a jawed or non-jawed vertebrate, a jawless vertebrate, that suggests there may have only been one pathway for evolution. Now, it's kind of neat. They're looking at a living species to try to guess the evolution of the back one because fossil records are kind of hard to find on fish. Mm, mm. Uh, so anyway, I just had no idea there was a debate on how gills evolved for fish and that there was that type of differentiation. Yeah, and it's and it's amazing. You know, you get some of these fish that can alter the way they use their gills and and the way in which they can go into fresh and salt water. And uh, I just find that all fascinating. It's an incredibly complex area and there's so, yeah. so much range. You know, even when you hear about things like seven-gilled sharks, and I was like, how many do they normally have? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, they're all, it's quite, quite varied. Yeah. It, 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 and, and some of the fish, particularly some of these jawless ones, the ha- uh, lampreys are one, but hagfish, mm. those things are really old evolutionary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're ancient. Yeah, yeah. kind of got it right, and we're not yeah. changing. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that's what a lot of them do. You know, yeah. they got it right, like crocodiles. You know, got it right, pretty good, mm. not changing, yeah. not evolving. Yeah, no need. All right, um, now, time to uh, say hi to all our New Zealand friends and insult them. I mean, I mean, um, sorry, do some research on New Zealand. <laughs> um, oh there's a push at the moment uh, by uh, quite a few people, actually, but uh, led at the moment by uh, an author uh, named Nick Mortimer, and he happens to be um, part of the uh, science group at Dunedin in New Zealand, to name, essentially, a new continent, another continent. And this is interesting. If you, if Wait, you look, is this like some weird split between North Island and South Island? Well, no, no, not quite, not quite, actually. Struggle, so if, if, you were to, if you were to drop the ocean level by, you know, several hundred metres or whatever, mm-hmm. you would find that there is essentially a landmass sticking out um, that covers most or all of New Zealand and some of the sort of New Caledonia Islands and so forth around that area. And it actually is quite prominent. So in a sense, you might call it a small continent or a mini continent. Mm-hmm. And so there's a bit of a push at the moment by by this guy and others, and it's been going on for about 10 years and it's starting to heat up a bit, as to whether or not there should be a new continent named. Because, you know, we have all the other continents, Eurasia, Africa, North America, South America, Antarctica, Australia, right? And the question is, what about this little one? Mm. You know, should should we name it? And it does have some interesting features. If you actually have a look at the landmass, you know, most of it's sort of sunken below water. But it, you know, has a continental shelf. You know, you can sort of fall off it into the, you know, all the things that we normally associate with continents. But here's the catch. Who, who do you go to to get it named as a continent? There's no committee for continents. Right. So. How do you uh, define a continent anyway? Like you said, is it, is it, is so it plate look at, boundaries? Yeah. So they'll look at ocean topography yeah. and so forth and they can, they can yeah. work this out. And it goes beyond that though too. You also look at the type of rock mm. that, that you find and that sort of specific type of rock you get in continental shelves, you know, they find in this one, mm. but the, the deeper sea stuff mm. you don't. So there, there is a difference and, mm. and you could make an argument that that's something there. But, yeah. But if we follow that line, then we should be calling it Mount Oahu. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And so the interesting thing is, is how we define these continents. Yeah. Now, this one is, is also quite small, so it's about a th- uh, probably a third or something of the size of the Australian continent, which is I'm. They're, they're promoting the name Zealandia. Ooh. Ooh. I'm pushing for Australia B. <laughs> <laughs> um, just put that out there. But it's it's interesting because if you think about it, we often hear the term the Indian subcontinent. Mm. And you, you kind of don't really consider that a continent now because it was once, India was a separate continent, but it's slammed into the Eurasian continent, you know, which is where we have the Himalayas. Mm. And now it's sort of all considered one piece mm. in a way. I, I thought we only really use the word subcontinent when we're talking about Australian bowlers. Yeah, cricket. Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty that's much. about it now. That's the only time. So, you know, and, and so the question is here is should this be named as a separate continent? But Well, it's a really 
interesting question because, I mean, with, with India, for example, you, you're talking about, I mean, is the Tibetan Plateau a, pa- a plate boundary anymore? I don't know. I'm not yeah, a geologist. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, I've had geologist colleagues at, at, at my workplace also talking about the Arabian Peninsula, for mm, example, mm. Um, which I think is what one of the, these microcontinents, as yeah, they call them. Yeah. I mean, what is a continent and what's just a bit that's broken off? That's right. And so <laughs> this is, was probably part of the Guandana mm. um, continent originally. And so this is a piece that has snapped off, mm. which is why I want to call mm. it Australia. Um, <laughs> but, and also, you know, just for my New Zealand friends. But um, the interesting thing about this, of course, is when you, when you think about you know, what, what are we going to, where are we going to limit this? Mm-hmm. It brings in other areas where we've had similar challenges, but more appropriate committees standing over them. So the planet scenario and Pluto is the main one. So there's, there's one geologist who's saying, well, maybe we should have a new term called a mini continent because yeah. there are all these what's called microcontinents, mm-hmm. which are basically little bits that have fallen off. Um, but there's nothing in the middle. So you're either a, a bit that's fallen off or you're a continent. Yeah. And he's saying, well, maybe just like you have a, you know, the Plutoid sort of, you know, small planets, you know, a mini planet, you know, all this other stuff. Maybe what you do is you have a new class called mini. Now I'm not I'm pretty sure New Zealanders aren't going for that, but no. we'll see. So are there are there international law implications here about things like fishing rights and laneways? If you define a continent, then do you define the waters between those different islands differently than international waters? The marine boundaries. Yeah, well they're usually I, I don't surface think so. based. Aren't yeah, they? they're yeah. really surface based. But but it is interesting around the the sort of work you might do. I mean if you if you know where the edges of these things are, that's where the, the rock changes, the type of rock and the type of material changes. So there's some interesting stuff there to look up. But it's um I just think it's great that there's no actual committee to work. We need out. we need a committee, an international <laughs> committee for continents. Yeah. And they meet once every <laughs> two billion <laughs> years. Because <laughs> they haven't had much to do lately, no, you know, no. sort of like this. Not like things change rapidly. Yeah, you can imagine these guys and girls are just sitting around having games of Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> while they're waiting for another, you know, anything? No. Any emails? No. You know, and then all of a sudden someone comes up and says, hey, New Landia, Zealandia, which I think, see, when I hear that, I hear of the movie title, Zoolander. Ah. Oh. Yeah. Oh. That's why I'm thinking, you know. Yeah, that, that, yeah. that. Anyway, Nick Mortimer, if you're listening from New Zealand, um, call Australia B, please, and we'll, we'll maybe help you get it through. 102.7. Welcome back, folks. You are listening to Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane, and in the studio with us now is Dr. Ronnie Welton. She's a research fellow from the Australian Venom Research Unit in the Department of Pharmacology and Therapeutics at the University of Melbourne. Ronnie, welcome to Triple R. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, um, you're working on this Australian Venomous Injury Project. It just sounds scary. I mean, is this something that we've put together just to scare Americans and stuff when they come here, or is it... Um, what? What are we talking about here? Oh, most certainly it, it draws some interest for sure. Uh, well, I was, so I'm, my focus is public health. Mm. I'm mostly interested in people f- first and foremost. So community groups, um, health structures, health systems. So I was working in Papua New Guinea for six years, working mm-hmm. on malaria with some HIV. And the ground level is what is going on? Because it's from this knowledge that you can then make some informed decisions. So mm. I came back to Australia 2014, got the job at AVRU and said, right, what's going on in Australia? And no one could tell me. There was lots of, it's jellyfish, no, it's snakes, no, it's spiders. Mm. So I thought, well, coming from a public health background, we need to find out. Yeah, and we, and we a lot of this, I suppose, the community's knowledge here is driven by the media. I mean, you know, at the moment, yes. I think, you know, it's, it's sharks, right? Mm. I mean, they're just everywhere. Yeah, venomous sharks, no. Yeah, no, well, you know, but, but, you know, <laughs> when, when I moved here, everyone convinced me it was drop bears, but yeah. 
You still believe that? No. Yeah. no. Um, uh, but, but thanks for checking. But it's, but it's interesting how we, we have this, mm. um, the, the, the way information is put out to mm. the public in terms of safety and is often grossly distorted from the realities. I mean, so, so when, what, what do you, what do you see when you look at something? So let's take snakes, for example. I mean, how, how does the reality of snakes to, to the sort of myth of snakes and snake bites compare? Well, that was the biggest surprise. So not, focusing on Australian envenoming, but looking at overseas issues mm-hmm. and coming back to Australia. So looking at mostly data sets from a policy point of view, so looking at hospital admissions nationally and also mortality data nationally. Mm-hmm. So I was looking from 2000. So from 2000 to current, there has been, for example, 27 deaths from snakes, which is terrible for the family. However, over 13 years, we're looking at maybe one to two deaths a year from from snake bite yeah whereas the media <laughs> will tell you that there are people getting bitten every day yeah in the shopping centers mm. <laughs> it well so isn't it, the statistics in other countries like india's several bites a day or they're much 2011, higher 2011 yeah so if we look at per hundred thousand population yeah. can we go into that is that all right so yeah, for yeah, australia yeah. it worked out to be 0.013 deaths per 100,000 of an Australian population, whereas in India it's 3.8, for example, right. per 100,000 okay. population. And is, is that because of the the actual number of snakes biting people or because of the response, the difference there between India and Australia? Well, this is the next steps. Um, so I'll, I guess I'll go out and come back around. Mm. Is I've put in for a grant, for a citizen science grant, looking at what is the perspective from the community. Because um, we have a lot of clinical perspectives of this is what you need to do and these are people coming in, but... What is happening in the community? For for example, I think pressure mobilisation for snake bite came in in 1979 and this is the Australian Resuscitation Council, this is what you need to do. And yet everyone was reporting in the clinicians, for example, no one's using it. Right. So if they're not using it, why aren't they using it? Yeah, so they're not using it. In, in, they're no, not using it. And I'm getting lots of calls to say, how do we do it? Do we still use tourniquets? Are we cutting? Are we sucking? Are we using bandages? What, what are we doing? So really to look at that disconnect is, yeah. is my mm. focus. Yes, yeah, so, so you know, those mm. of us who are educated by, you know, John Wayne and so forth, mm. you, know, <laughs> you, know, you grab that person's leg and you suck that out. Yeah, that's right. I mean, <laughs> uh, but you know, th- this is the thing. Some of this information doesn't get across mm. um, so, so easily. Yeah. So, I mean, you talked about deaths, deaths per population mm. in Australia mm. versus somewhere like India. What about people actually getting bitten in the first place? I mm. mean, you know, is that comparable per population or is that, is it just that we're doing something, we've got more anti-venom, we've got more facilities, what's, what's well, the... This is, uh so with the public health, so looking at your health in your communities, it, it's multifaceted. So you have the animal, you have our interactions and our behaviours, mm. um, how we want to interact with animals, mm. um, together with access to health care. So if we're mm. looking at India, they have a lot of animals, similarly mm. to Australia, um, but they don't have the health care or mm. the health facilities mm. or the effective treatment whereas in mm. australia there's very good treatment um very easy and quick access to health care mm. so there's the potential that even though people and this was just broad brushstroke so this was just purely hospital admission so there's still a, a host of, of issues preceding that mm. of people who may get bitten one of the big issues because i know snakes and jellyfish they always make the media but mm. the big thing that came through was it's actually insects that are sending the most people to hospital. So mm. bees and stuff. Bees, well, ants, spider bites. Spider bites, yeah. Mm, but mainly swelling and pain yeah. and yeah. things like that. And I was speaking to an allergist from Monash 
health centre on Thursday. And you're saying, well, of course it is. I know that. So it's something I guess clinicians know, but it hasn't made it into the public or even policy sphere mm. from healthcare. Mm. Um, he's like, but insects aren't sexy. Were yeah, his yeah, words yeah. to me. Mm. <laughs> Whereas snakes are. Oh. And it's often it's often the difference too. I mean, when when you think of you know a lot of people get stung by bees on the feet, mm. you know, because they you know I'm sorry, but if you're going to step on me, I'm going to sting you too. Yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> fair yeah. enough. But, and, and in fact, most of these things have that that attribute to them. I mean, snakes. Mm. I was you know tell my kids they're bloody scared shitless of us. Mm. I mean, we, we're really big, yeah. <laughs> and they try and get, mm. you know. So if you get bitten by a snake, usually you've stepped on it, or mm. or you've done something you know Stewart Irwin esque. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that will get you bit. Um, but we, we don't sort of, um, we don't have that same mentality around insects because, mm. you know, the, the idea that you got bitten by an ant is, you know, it's not the fireside <laughs> story you can tell you. No, we're your quite mates. habituated to these animals, aren't we? They're, yeah, they're in yeah, our yeah. houses, they're yeah. in our homes. So yeah. whereas you see a snake, I think it's probably something quite primal mm. there as well. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, now you're, you and the team have been working on this geospatial database. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, this is magic. So, and this is also being linking to an app that that's at currently out. So, there's still a few more iterations. So, we're going to look at geolocating where you are, mm-hmm. and then using geospatial data. So, with the publication that came out, really looking at putting geography and putting a picture behind the numbers, um, because big tables and big graphs are, are really off-putting. So, looking at Australia state, um, Australian Bureau Statistics has some designations called remoteness areas, which they have categorised with health centres or health systems. So, National Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. Try mm-hmm. not to use acronyms. I apologise. <laughs> yeah. Of major city, inner regional, outer regional, remote, and very remote, and they are linked. So, there are clearly delineated boundaries, which, in part, with lots of algorithms is accessibility to healthcare. Um, so we've mapped mm. it with that to try and look at states, remoteness, mm. um, hospitalizations, mortality, what's going on where. And it's just broad brushstrokes of it really, the work generates more questions than it actually answers. Mm. So if um, if you actually have uh, starting to be able to track, even if it's by hospitals, what people are getting bit by where, mm-hmm. does that mean you can start to track... Things like motion of species, either invasive ones like fire ants or, um, or, or, or species that, you know, if, if jellyfish are coming south. Are these things you can actually start to track with this? Ooh, multifaceted answer. Um, so my focus is on people and people's interactions and behaviours. However, yes, there is certainly the ecological side of, you know, urban expansion. Um, are we going into these animals homes so to speak and even with the jellyfish and and part of the public health is also linking and coordinating so we have queensland ambulance service who have been tracking jellyfish stings down the coast for years but queensland ambulance service isn't really talking to surf lifesaving isn't talking to the hospitals and all of a sudden oh there's jellyfish down here well Mm. quite a few people have known that but instead of being proactive and trying to work together and link those sets keeping in mind privacy principles, of course, mm. um, to then help be proactive. Um, when you're talking about ecologies, we have more brown snakes moving into, for example, tiger snake territories, and brown snakes have been causative of the most deaths in Australia. Mm. So what does that mean if they're coming in and moving into more urban areas, taking over other ecologies? Um, and certainly there is a lot of other questions in regard to that. But uh, Forgive me, I, I think maybe I was missing the point, though. You, you said your viewpoint's more from people. Yes. So there is that about how people are interacting with the species or mm. how people can use this information to help them if they do get bit or 
preventative measures or both definitely mm-hmm. both yeah so a lot of the for example mortality were people trying to pick up snakes um trying to <laughs> do creepy things ta-da! and so and, and and yeah and just i guess knowledge is power so the more that you understand what your options are when you come across a venomous animal, you know this is who I call. These are the signs and symptoms with the anaphylaxis from insects. A lot of it was so quick, um, or people waiting, and I get calls. I'm not a clinician. I say, go and talk to your GP. You know, if you start getting short of breath, or you start feeling too much pain, go and talk to someone. Don't be stoic. Mm, <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and go and see someone. But could we have that option? Yeah, it's interesting. Picking up a snake to me is like uh, in the category of kissing a bull shark. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like no. uh, you know, you, no. you're not going to do well at that. Now, in, when, when you when you talk about the app and stuff, I mean, how how do you think this will change? Is it going to change the way we address people as they come into the health system as well? Is that is that the deal? Like they'll have more information coming in, and you know, because I, I can assume that most people who've been bit or you know anything like this won't know what they've been, unless of course they were picking up the snake. Um, you know, won't know. <laughs> won't know what they were bit by is mm. that you know so is this going to change the way we do that like so if i know where my location was and what mm. species were there mm. does that change the response i think overall no if it's a snake and you've been bitten <laughs> we hope that we can teach people to show people what can you do when it comes to first aid who can i contact mm. um, and the rest really is for instance it's more for prevention so yep. who's around where do they live? If I'm trekking through the bush, am I going to be walking through there in thongs or am I going to actually be wearing some shoes because I understand that there are these snakes here mm. and things like that? So it's not a, a clinical perspective for people to self-diagnose. Right. It's definitely, this is where I am, what is the risk? And if you help with the tourist industry or anything, this is where I am, this is the animals, what is the first aid and... If something happens, who do I talk to? Hmm. I, I suppose this falls into the same category as, you know, I have a major issue with this idea of a shark cull. I mean, if, if we, we need to coexist with, with all of these species, and that's just, that's the way it's going to be. Mm. We, we've, you know, the idea that you're going to eliminate all the jellyfish is like, well, good luck with that. Mm. <laughs> You'd really screw up the environment. And so this is really about working out how to coexist in a way that's safe, but, but you know, valuable as well. Oh, definitely, definitely. So, yeah, so mm. the app is, yeah, Australian Bites and Stings. Um, so have a look, and we'd really, really appreciate your feedback on anything that you can help us with. Awesome. Dr. Ronnie Welton, thanks so much for coming in, and I uh, hope that app goes well. I'm sure there'll be, you know, a whole lot of Americans, uh, as we, you know, we tell them the drop, drop best, or you should put a drop best in oh, there. Oh, yeah. We really should. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. if you could link that to the Google search. That'd be great. There's yeah. a Facebook page for Australian drop best. Oh, yeah. So we could link vicious. it to the Facebook site. I've seen oh, that. It's scary. God. I was going to show my kids, and it's too scary. It's, yeah. it's nasty. It's like a scene from Aliens. <laughs> Every G. Anyway, thanks so much for chatting with us, and good luck with the app. Hey, cheers. Thank you. Dr. Ronnie Welton is from uh, the Australian Venom Research Unit, the Australian <laughs> Venom Research Unit in the Department of Pharmacology and Therapeutics at the University of Melbourne. Triple. <sighs> Welcome back, folks. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on Three Triple R. In the studio with us now is Dr. Robin Schofield, who's a senior lecturer in the School of Earth Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Robin, welcome back. It's been a few years, but we've had you on before. Yes, great to be here. Now, and you're still doing all your Antarctic research, Antarctica research, I assume. 
Um, I have a very strong interest in Antarctica. Yeah. But, um, yeah, not at the moment, not so, as much. So one of the things that stuck with me from the last time you were on that still bothers me, actually, is that someone could basically burn something in the Northern Hemisphere and you could detect it in Antarctica. Is that, is that, this is, this is true, right? That's true. And, yeah. And how, how does, I mean, just talk us through how that works, because I find that fascinating. Okay, so there is, of course, the barrier of getting um, substances from the the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere. Mm. So that that process, like mixing across the hemispheres, takes about a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it needs to be a really long-lived pollutant. Yep. And mercury, as we were talking mm. about last time, is one of those things. So, yeah. And has yeah. that improved at all? I mean, it's been a few years since we talked about this. Has it improved or is it still well, probably getting worse? We are still burning fossil fuels, yeah. so we are still putting mercury in the atmosphere. So that's a no. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes, now, um, speaking of pollution, um, you, you're working at the moment in this interesting area, and you had a, an article in the conversation um, recently about the whole um, noxious emission policy, so the stuff that's going on in Australia, and there's currently an open forum for people to feed back into this process. Tell us a bit about what what that process is and what we're what we're trying to do. Yeah, so the the Department of Infrastructure as well as the Department of um, the Environment and Energy have have decided um, to do like a, almost a whole community um, approach mm-hmm. uh, and are reviewing the fuel efficiency as well as the the noxious noxious vehicle emissions um, all at once actually. So those are and as well as and we're looking at the air quality standards as well over a much longer time period. So reviewing all these things at once is huge actually mm. for policy in Australia. Is it too much to do? I mean, is it too much for the community, the community to get their head around? I mean, it seems uh, like it a lot. M- it makes a lot of sense to do it all together okay. because yep. if you don't look at the fuel efficiency at the same time as you think about the noxious emissions, you might make some standards and won't be able to meet or change anything in the noxious emission space. Now, now some things have changed. I mean, I know these days, you know, if you see a car with, you know, blue smoke billowing out the back, everyone looks and going, you dirty bastard, you know, like people, the, the, whereas it used to be the norm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there has been a cultural shift, um, away from this, but we, we still have diesel vehicles everywhere and probably growing in number in Australia. And so yeah. Forth, so, so actually, um, the, the number of diesel emissions in the private vehicle fleet Mm-hmm. has increased by 60% since 2011 to 2016. Wow. So there's a lot of incentives. Everyone loves their diesel SUV. Um, mm. So I think the, the worst word there is SUV. Mm. Really? Very American, isn't it? Yeah. If you don't own the farm, anyway, no, yeah. let's not get into that. Um, we're down to one car now. But it's an SUV. So uh, one of the things in your article in the conversation I was just floored about about Australian regulations was the sulfur uh, cutoff for Australia. Mm-hmm. You know, normally I like to think Australia is more forward-thinking about their emissions re- regulation than <laughs> so, the U.S. So what gave you that impression? <laughs> well, at least the current U.S. But that the, we're at, what, 250 ppm parts per million? No, it's uh, 150. 150, sorry. Yep, ppm but, of sulfur is allowed in Australian petrol. And um, the U.S. did have a standard of 30 ppm up mm. until the 31st of December. And on the 1st of January, that went down to 10 ppm. So Australia is 15 times worse than that. And... Um, and the US EPA have a fantastic infographic out and 
they really talk about for every cent that the refineries spend on um, improving that fuel standard it's you get 13 cents in health benefits returned so wow. it's it's huge and and it's not taken into account so, so this is i mean this is where i find things fascinating because the refineries have no interest whatsoever themselves, those companies in health. That's not their problem. They don't make money off that. Um, but from a, from a public and government point of view, there's, there's, a, there's obviously a strong connection. So yeah. talk me through though, Robin, the, the issue of sulfur. I mean, why is it, sorry, why is there sulfur in the fuel? Why do we care about keeping a lot in there? Why do we, you know, what, what's, uh, so, what's so the deal with sulfur? The sulfur in the, in the fuels, uh, it comes like mercury actually, mm-hmm. um, they're, they're closely affiliated arsenic. So it's in the fuels mm-hmm. um, and the refineries have to either remove it, certainly if you have strict sulfur yep. um, standards. Now sulfur, when you burn it, you get sulfur dioxide and that goes on to PM2.5. So that's one part of the sulfur problem. But a bigger problem is like if you want to reduce the NOx from your um, vehicles and, and all the, the engines are designed to run on low sulfur fuels mm-hmm. so that their catalytic converters work as advertised. Right. And that means that you're getting the carbon emissions coming down, so it's not CO being emitted, but rather carbon dioxide. Um, but also the efficiency of your catalytic converter, the efficiency of your engines improves when you have low sulfur fuels. Mm-hmm. So there's just a lot of... Every reason to... A lot of out. reasons to bring it down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, we, we were also talking about, um, just before the show came on air, about this idea of cars that turn themselves off at the lights. And, and long-time listeners of, of these of this show would know my love affair with my car that does this that I bought four years ago and and while I was um, going shopping this morning you know when I was sitting there at the lights I actually had a look for you to, to be able to tell you that in four years so I've had this car about four years and I've driven about ninety thousand kilometers total so I do a bit of driving um, my car has been in this stop mode for sixty eight hours. Now, we were, we were talking about the efficiency and pollutants from the car. If I'm on the freeway at, say, 100 kilometres per hour versus sitting there, and they're, they're close, they're close. Mm-hmm. So that's the equivalent of me driving an additional almost 7,000 kilometres in my car, and those pollutants haven't come out. I mean, this, this is an extraordinary difference. Yeah, huge, huge benefit for the consumer yeah. by um, uh, having anti-idling technology mm. coming in, um, moving away from fossil fuel um, reliant transport systems because of like, if we cannot um, if we're spending a lot of time stationary, it's not it's mm. not great. Everyone gets frustrated as a driver. You're extremely frustrated. Um, so there are, are other ways and and I talk in the conversation article and it's something that isn't addressed in terms of fuel efficiency is actually turning your vehicle off. Mm. You don't need to have it running if it's, if you're going to be stationary for more yeah. than 10 seconds. Yeah, you yeah. will save money. Yeah. And I, it, most of us have grown up in a period where, um, well, yeah, maybe not you, Dr. Ailey, you know, we were younger <laughs> than the rest of us, but, but we, we, we've grown up in a period where it was a good day when the car started. You know what I mean? So the idea of stopping and starting your car many times during a journey, just it's, it's almost un- unfathomable compared to, I remember my XD Ford and then when that, that thing turned over, I got excited. <laughs> I kept I kept a hammer in the boot so I could whack the alternator if I had to. <laughs> so this is a completely different mindset for a lot of people that 
these engines now can do this very effectively and normally and you don't know this the change and i've certainly adapted to it so yeah. we, we have to do with that there's too, a lot we? of driver education how you drive your car mm, yeah. accounts for 60 percent of your um, like efficiency or otherwise um so mm, you mm. can definitely improve um yeah. Yeah. I mean, on that, I was reading something the other day about kind of cultural norms, particularly with with the older generation. Anyway, <laughs> you're looking at me. <laughs> I'm looking at you straight now. I'm joking. Yeah. But um, about you know warming your car up, and how you have to leave oh, yeah. it sitting there for ten to twenty minutes or whatever it was to warm your car up, and people still do that sometimes. Yeah. With the modern cars that don't need you, that. You absolutely don't need to do it, and in fact, um, large places around the world it's a finable offense to idle in new york if you're a repeat offender you can wow. spend up to a year in jail really or a five thousand dollar fine wow. like so so it's really big and a huge cost to society yeah. actually so when we talk about some of these idling technologies and that how is the sort of australian car market comparable to to what's happening in europe and especially say some of the scandinavian countries which seem to be a mile ahead in every other area of energy than we are i mean is this like just normal all the cars on the street like that over there or and um, there's certainly been the, um incentives to mm. to move towards these um Either electric vehicles or um, anti-idling technology, um, and so, and by 2020, actually, in four major cities, they're going to ban diesel. So, um, and I think Norway is banning the electric, like um, banning, <laughs> banning all other cars, right. um, apart from electric cars, as new car sales from 2025. I think. Oh, wow. So, yeah. it's these are big shifts in, in our transport systems. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Now, um, where should people go if they want to, you know, make a comment or, or otherwise on yeah, this so, change? So yeah. there's, um, on the Department of Infrastructure um, website, there are the regulation impact statements mm -hmm. and they are welcoming submissions at the moment. And um, so anyone can make a submission and certainly groups and bodies um are very welcome to. I know that the Department of Infrastructure, as well as the Department of Environment uh, and Energy, are welcoming submissions from the health sector in particular. Mm. And um, I guess it's my hope that perhaps they'll bring in the Department of Health as well, because it's a big um, part of the decisions that yeah. they have to make. Yeah, and certainly that connection between costs and so forth is, is there with the Department of Health. Robin, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us and keep up uh, your warrior spirit in terms of getting this done. I think you and Dr. Ailey are both, uh, you know... <laughs> you're Environmental beat, warriors. You're beating, your heads, yeah, no, you're beating your heads against the brick wall, but the bricks are starting to give way. So, uh, so there's keep a, there's it up a tiny crack in tiny one crack? of them. But yeah. The, 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 yeah. yeah, the ice shelf. <laughs> yeah, that's um, right. Indeed. So uh, good luck with it. Keep it going and um, we'll, we'll check in with you down the track and see how this all comes you know, hopefully we'll get diesel vehicles and so forth off the road. So thanks for chatting to us. Okay, thank you. Dr. Robin Schofield's a senior lecturer in the School of Earth Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Three. Triple. Now, I wanted to have a quick chat about um, uh, a very important star, uh, Trappist One. Although Ooh. the interesting thing is, do you know what its original title was before people started calling it Trappist One? No. Let me give it to you. <laughs> two Mass J two three zero six two nine two eight dash zero five zero two two eight five. That's sexy. That's catchy. Rolls off the tongue. 
Um, so, folks, if you know what we're talking about, there was a lot of news came out this week about the seven Earth-sized planets orbiting around this relatively nearby kind of pissy little star. It's a red dwarf. So it's a, this is a star slightly bigger than Jupiter. It's about 10% bigger than Jupiter. It's really small, pretty cool. It's old, right? Compared yeah, to they're to old, and there's a lot of these stars in the galaxy, so they're, they're, it's not, you know, it's not uncommon. Um, but what is unusual about this star? So first of all, I should say it's about 40 light years away. So this is, you know, if you want to travel there and you were travelling there at the speed of light, mm-hmm. um, you would get there in about 40 years. If you could get yourself up to about 20% of the speed of light, you're talking 200 years. If you're in the space shuttle, it's about 200,000 years. Yeah, it, it's it's still a long way away, right? But in terms of looking at things through telescopes and so forth, it's really close 40 light years is really close for us so it's interesting why why is it interesting because if we were to look at the planets around this star at that distance even with hubble but possibly with the james webb telescope which is going up next year we'd be able to examine hopefully the atmospheres um or or lack thereof Mm. um, from these planets and if we can do that and we can find certain things like oxygen and so forth then we can say "Hmm, okay what makes oxygen you know and we can start to look at the possibility of life and so forth. So there's all sorts of fun things there. But what was really cool about this um, this discovery, and I should, I'll should i take you back just a little bit. There was a guy named Michael Gillian, who's an astrophysicist at the University of League in Belgium, and he um, announced last year that he'd found uh, basically three um, Earth-sized planets around this star. And so what happens when whenever someone makes one of these announcements is other telescopes are designated to have a look at this and confirm the findings. And it's the same when the Kepler space probe does it. You know, there's always a range of other yeah. telescopes that have to confirm. And when they did this, they actually said, well, you know what? Actually, one of them isn't a planet. It's four. Oh. Yeah. So when they oh, looked wow. at it in more detail, they said, no, 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 dude, you haven't found three. You haven't found three. You found seven. Wow. Um, you just couldn't pull the data apart with what you had mm. on one of them. And so they were able to determine that there are seven planets orbiting around this particular star. And what they do is they, the way they do that is they look at the, the light from the star and every time the light dims a little bit, mm. they can see that a, basically a planet passed between us and the star. So it dims the light a little bit. By working out how much it gets dimmed by, you can get an approximation of the size. And of course, by working out how often that dimming occurs, you can work out how fast these planets are travelling around. And and so you get them, they, they, they're in orbits, so you know one of them might travel around every couple of days and then there might be another one that's every couple of months. You can work out how many there are. So when they thought there were only three instead of seven, is that because maybe four of them passed at the same time? And yes, they thought it was one bigger one. Very close together. And to so, I mean, to give you an idea here, uh, it's, it's not that... Um, we, we have to sort of compare this this little system to our own and say, okay, as we know, I mean, Pluto, since we've been looking up in the sky and probably since we've been doing anything useful as a species, hasn't <laughs> made an orbit yet, you know, <laughs> like no. it's, or it hasn't gone around yeah. once. We go around once every 365 days. The innermost of these seven planets, which are all about the size of Earth, that's mm. the cool thing. So there are, there are a certain size. The innermost one goes around its star, strap in people, once every 1.5 days. What? So a year on the innermost... Is that just because the star's so... No, that's not just because the star's it's so where small. It's, lo- it's, it's also... You know, it's orbital mechanics. So it's yeah, where, the, yeah, where, yeah. The, where the objects are located. This yeah. one's very close. So it goes around once every 1.5 days. <laughs> and the furthest out one, the longest one, yeah. once every 20 days. Yeah. So this wow. whole thing is, you know, is really close. 
So the Goldilocks zone is is the region in where planets are where they can sustain liquid water. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. Mm. That's right. Yep. Now, because it's a red dwarf and not like our sun, does that mean the Goldilocks region's in a different position relative to the Ab- sun? Absolutely. I mean, that's right. So it's it's much closer. Um, so these planets are obviously much closer. It's much closer. And what you want is a scenario where, you know, ideally you have these planets spinning around just like Earth does and you get weather and all these things. And, and at the right temperature, you could have liquid water. And the idea is that that's your best hope of getting life. Now, one of the things that might be true of these planets is they might be tidally locked. Now, what that means is they travel around their sun in the same way the moon travels around us. You know, you know, we can always see one side of the mm-hmm. moon. That's because it rotates once for every orbit. So it's constant. It's it's turning, but it turns at the same rate as it goes around Earth. So, so, so there's so, a dark side of these planets that never gets to see the... Yes, yeah, so free, or more importantly, a freezing cold side a freezing cold and a boiling side. hot yeah, side. Right. Yeah. And there's this little range, like a ring yeah. around the planet that's yeah. on the border of those two that might be reasonable. Mm. But so these are interesting, though, because three of them are in this supposed Goldilocks mm. zone, so they might be viable if there's water there, if... That's you know. the question, if there's... And if so, there's. you know, it was interesting. I put some stuff up on Facebook for mm. Dr. Jeff during the week that basically helped him because... He was looking at all these artists' impressions of, of these planets, <laughs> which looks like something, you know, halfway between Hawaii and New Zealand in terms of <laughs> landscapes. But the reality is we don't know if there's yeah. weather. We, we don't really yeah. – we know they're rocky. Um, we can tell that by how much they tug each other gravitationally. Mm. So the guys have already worked that out, which is mm. fabulous. But we don't yet know the rest. So, so. they're more kind of maybe Mercury-like, which could is – yeah. Could be all sorts of things. So yeah. until we until we get more data, yeah. but having seven Earth-sized planets – Yeah, that's crazy. Very cool. It also says that it's possibly – the norm to find lots of these and that's what we're starting to see mm. so which is really exciting anyway i get excited about this stuff dr ailey thanks so much for coming in thanks, good to see dr. you Shane. hopefully we'll see you again yep <laughs> soon and dr ray good to have you back good to see you i'm dr shame thanks for tuning in to triple r and remember science is everywhere we'll chat again next week this has been a podcast from free triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.